welcome to Cult Movie Cult, where we watch and discuss the horrific, the obscure, and the flat-out strange from the other side of cinema. I'm Mark Dickerson. And I'm Jeremy Fink. And this is the fourth episode in our series X-Rated and Animated, The World of Ralph Bakshi, where we'll be digging into the work of a true and controversial auteur of animated cinema. Today we'll be discussing Bakshi's exploration of music, family, and the American dream with 1981's American Pop. One family. Some music I love. Four generations. This is work. This is play. In love with the sound of American pop. Ralph Bakshi, the creator of Fritz the Cat and Lord of the Rings, now takes modern animation a quantum leap forward with a motion picture of incredible beauty and remarkable power. Dance to it, drive to it, sing with it, or swing with it. If you can crank it up, plug it in, or switch it on. If it assaults your senses, rocks your body, or touches your soul. It's American Pop. American Pop is a 1981 adult animated musical drama film produced and directed by Bakshi. The film tells the story of five generations, or four according to Wikipedia, of a Russian Jewish immigrant family of musicians whose careers parallel the history of American popular music in the 20th century. And like last episode, we're going to just touch on the film that came before this from Bakshi, um, because we do want to mention it, even though we're not going to focus on it for this episode, we want to just bring it up because it was a big one for him and uh, just a big pop culture film in general. So in 1978, Bakshi was at the helm of a, a very large epic animated film called The Lord of the Rings. This was his adaptation of the uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, uh, high fantasy epic, The Lord of the Rings, obviously. Um, and his film, uh, it basically comprised The Fellowship of the Ring, which is the first novel, and the first half of The Two Towers, uh, the second novel. So he gets essentially halfway through the story. And he did want to tell the entire story because he was a huge fan of, of the story and he was very passionate about telling this, even though it wasn't his uh, work, which is something he hadn't done since Fritz the Cat, really. It was work on something that wasn't really his own idea. Um, but I think it's just, you know, Lord of the Rings is such a huge uh, template for fantasy um, and just fiction in general. So I think he just wanted to be a part of that and give his take on it. And he wanted to complete that take, but unfortunately that was not possible. Um, even though the film, when it came out, was a financial success, um, it received a lot of mixed reactions from critics. And uh, for one reason or another, it did not receive a sequel and he was not able to close out the story. So he instead focused on, uh, he went back to focusing on a more personal story, uh, which is American Pop. Yeah, and so uh, American Pop, as we mentioned, tells the story of this Russian Jewish immigrant family of musicians, and it kind of, uh, it, it's a pretty big story in scope. Uh, the way it's told, that was the first thing personally that stuck out to me, is that it is the story of multiple generations, and 
the what, what one thing that jumped out to me immediately that I I was pretty fond of was the fact that you know Bakshi being a big film lover and historian kind of used the medium in a different way to tell each generational story. Uh, so we we open the film in uh, the late late eighteen hundreds and I believe the eighteen nineties in Russia. Uh, during the pogroms, which we don't really have time to unpack now. That's kind of another topic. Um, but basically, it was the persecution <laughs> of Jews in Russia in the late 1890s, mm-hmm. um, which triggered many, many Jewish people moving to the United States. Um, and that section, that whole section, is told through a silent film with intertitles and the whole nine yards. And as we move through the time, the film style kind of changes to reflect what's going on in the particular time period in the world and America specifically. Yeah. Um, like you said, Jeremy, it's pretty epic, like pretty grand. Uh, you know, the story that he's telling is pretty grand, uh, much like Lord of the Rings and, and like Wizards. He seemed to be evolving more into telling these kind of larger narratives mm-hmm. um, from his first couple of movies. And this movie, I think, is is pretty different from anything else he's done. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a lot more emotional. Uh, actually, Jeremy, before we started recording, you used the word earnest, and I think that's a good word to describe this film. It's much. It's probably the most earnest film uh, that we've seen from him this far. Even though with uh, heavy traffic was, you know, that movie was very personal for him. But this one just feels different. It's um, it wasn't written by him. I think might be one reason for that. Um, but it's very clearly Bakshi, but also just, yeah, more um, earnest, more human, um, ground level, you know, going into these different families. And you just feel like you get to know each of these characters pretty well. And um, also he brings a bit of history into it. Like you mentioned, um, you know, we start in the late 1890s. So we kind of go from there up until this, when this film came out, which was 1981. Um so pretty different from what we had seen before. It's it's um, and as the title would suggest, it's pure Americana in certain ways. Yeah. Um, and also uh, because it is generations of American fathers that it focuses on, um, it does give the title a double meaning there. Um, and we we get to see these different father son relationships. And uh, Jeremy, I feel like part of the film or a lot of what the message of the film is is uh, you know the um, traditional tale of the sins of the father. You know coming coming back to affect his uh, his offspring. I yeah. feel like that's really a big part of this movie. What do you think? I see. I think it's interesting, and it might be just that, you know, we're in the first few days of spring here, and the sun is shining, and I'm in a good mood. Um, but I kind of, <laughs> personally, when I, I finished this film, it wasn't so much the sins of the father. For me, it was kind of more the story of the sacrifice that a family makes and how so many generations can lead to one person finally breaking through and seeing success um, kind of on the heels of the struggle of all the others. So for me, it was, it was a little bit more optimistic than that. I think Mm -hmm. Um, obviously there were, there were characters in this family who were really imperfect human beings, which I, you know, I love, I I tend to be drawn towards films that have these imperfect characters. But I think that what was interesting for me is that ultimately it seemed like all of them were trying to reach some kind of musical enlightenment. They were trying to, to find answers to complicated questions of of death, of heartbreak through music, um, but ultimately, be it the the time period, be it their own personalities, uh, world events happening, um, something kind of kept getting in the way of this this idea of enlightenment. Until spoiler alert, at the very end, 
the the fifth and final generation who's playing that 1970s rock and roll music finally kind of breaks through and seems to have transcended and moved up. Um, but to me, I, I personally interpreted it as a hopeful message that, you know, even though it might not happen right now for somebody, the things that they're doing could down the line lead to eventually something positive happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this film, it still has that ethnic flair that we see in a lot of Bakshi's other films mm-hmm. uh, to kind of tie it all together. I mean, it's, um, but even though he has that, it's, it's in a different, more traditional sort of way. Uh, he's taking us back in time and, you know, particularly with this one immigrant family of Russian Jewish descent um, through four or five <laughs> generations. Um, so it's a little bit of a different take on his usual, um, what he usually, you know, likes to portray in his films. So, mm-hmm. um, but he's obviously, uh, actually still very interested in the seedy underground of urban life. Um, yeah. You know, because the, the character, you know, a lot of the characters, well, the main, one of the main characters, uh, Zalmi, he gets involved with some shady gangster characters. And there's a lot of that type of thing in the in the film, partic- particularly early on, mm-hmm. although obviously it, it evolves as the times change. Um, and it shows a lot of how violence intrudes in their lives. And we also see, you know, we see factory fires, uh, gangster shootouts, a lot of drug related um, incidents that happen and uh, a lot of crime and these are like the main through lines of the film as as well as um, sins of the father or however you want to look at that aspect of it what's interesting though is that they're portrayed in a different way than they are as we mentioned than other Bakshi films Um, ironically the word that I would use is cartoonish they're much less cartoonish even though they are in fact cartoons Um, it, it seems like they're just the the weight of the situation not that his other films don't take things like violence and heartbreak you know like there's one scene where uh, Zalmi's mother dies in what is the triangle shirtwaist factory fire i believe um yeah. and and like like in in other films you know like like a fritz the cat or a heavy traffic mm-hmm. um or even wizards you know something so, like a big serious event could happen but the way it's portrayed be it the animation um or the writing around it yeah. kind of makes it feel a little bit less consequential and portrayed in a more maybe ironic way and yeah. the message itself could be hidden in a moment. Whereas in this film, it feels like the darker elements are more intended to be viewed as just part of this narrative. They're not really supposed to mm-hmm. be making this massive cultural statement. I feel like the statements kind of come from the the overarching narrative as a whole. Yeah. And you also have that through line of the popular music, obviously, which is a big part of this film. Mm-hmm. Um, and also the editing. I, I noticed the editing is very interesting in this movie. For example, like the one sequence where he's uh, cutting between su- swing dancers and scenes of from the Second World War with this kind of like jaunty music playing over both kinds of images. Like He does that kind of thing a lot in it. Um, and he builds some really cool momentum and makes some really cool moments out of just the editing of different scenes and juxtaposition. Sorry, juxtaposing. Wow, juxtaposing different images together. Um, There's a lot of that in this movie, and uh, as you said, he does revisit. You know, you talked about Fritz Fritz the Cat a little. He does revisit the '60s in this film, 
Um, and we saw how critical he was of it, of that time period in, uh, with Fritz the Cat. Um, we see it in a little bit of a different light here. I yeah. mean, he's still, he's presenting, uh, you know, his, his certain side of it, but he shows the beatniks and whatnot. Um, but did you feel it was pretty different from Fritz the Cat? Yeah, well, I feel like Fritz, Fritz the Cat um, and, and kind of other eras that Bakshi had portrayed, I feel like the difference between those and this particular film is that we have really much more of a backstory. Um, I think that in something like Fritz the Cat or Heavy Traffic, we're kind of just thrown into that world and maybe don't have sympathy or empathy for the characters and people who have who found themselves in it. Whereas in this film, for example, because we have the reference point of Fritz the Cat, when we see our characters kind of diving into that hippie world, we're seeing them coming from something that is leaving them feeling kind of empty the, so it's leaving them feeling empty and wanting answers. And at that particular time, the place to find answers seemed to be that hippie movement. It seemed to be going to San Francisco, um, moving west, yeah. that kind of free, off-the-rails life. In, in a way that mm -hmm. I think Fritz the Cat understood, but it didn't seem like Fritz was in pain. It didn't seem like mm -hmm. Fritz was struggling. It felt mm -hmm. like Fritz was bored. Whereas for the characters in this particular film... Um, it, it feels a lot more like it, it came like a lot more from, yeah, much. it was a grittiness to it. Yeah. Uh, more gritty, a little more earnest, like you said, portrayal of the different time periods, uh, particularly the sixties, which I think is pretty, pretty, you know, a contrast to, um, what we saw in Fritz the Cat, obviously in a lot of ways. Um, and also he shows the technology, you know, as, as the years progress, um, there's kind of that same message from wizards. So I noticed where, um, you know, the, he's showing how TV takes over in the one scene where he's like yelling at his family to stop watching the television and stop staring at, you know, at the tube all day. So, you know, he has little um, commentaries like that throughout, which is kind of uh, cool. Like in in uh, in addition to the story and the music, he has little things like that. Um, and also the film gets more psychedelic as the music gets more psychedelic as well, um, which is kind of cool. Um, and you really see some cool editing stuff going on towards, uh, especially towards the end of the film, I would say. Mm -hmm. um, and he goes all the way up to, you know, the punk and the new wave movement, um, which was prevalent when the movie was released, obviously. Um, but I think we would be remiss to talk about this film and not talk about two things. Um, I want to talk about both of these things in their own little sections here. So first I want to focus on the rotoscoping and then I want to talk about the music. So first the rotoscoping, um, we've seen rotoscoping, uh, which is an animation technique, um, as we described it before, which is essentially tracing over, or not tracing, but you know, <laughs> I mean, it's essentially kind of tracing. tracing right? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's a good way. Over, of um, yeah, over live action footage, um, to, make animation that is presented in a, a sort of interesting way. It looks realistic, yet it's still sort of surreal because it's not real, um, because it's still animation. So he's used that technique before, uh, a little more sparingly, but this film, um, he went full on. He The entire film is rotoscoped. So from start to finish, um, basically all of the animation is rotoscoped animation. Um, and he was starting to use it a lot more, uh, particularly in the Lord of the Rings adaptation he did. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of rotoscoping done there, and we talked about it in Wizards. And, you know, he's always kind of mixed it in, but this time he really went for broke with it. And um, that was a stylistic choice that I think really makes sense for this movie. Yeah. Um, How do you feel about it in this, in this context? Uh, yeah, I, I actually really enjoyed the rotoscoping in this film. I think more than in the other films that we've seen from him. I feel like it makes more sense in this one in a way. It makes more sense, but also I just think he's he got better at it. 
you know, like we're seeing the progression of an artist here. And to me, like, like in the other, in, in, uh, wizards, the rotoscoping would happen and I would notice that it was rotoscoping. Um, whereas here, I honestly didn't really find myself thinking about the rotoscoping as I was watching it. Also, that might have something to do with the whole film being rotoscoped too. You'd kind of just get used to yeah. it as you're watching it. Yeah. Yeah, perhaps. But also it's just, I think that it was, it just kind of felt really refined to me. Um, mm-hmm. it, fe- it felt like it was rotoscoped for a really, it, it, it felt really intentional. It didn't feel like it was to fill anything in because there were certain moments in Wizards, which I really enjoy. I think they're interesting, but it feels a little pieced together. Like maybe it was a solution to a problem but not necessarily his budgetary issues and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, whereas in this, it it just, it just feels like, like from the beginning, they said, this is what we're doing. And they, Mm -hmm. and they totally stuck to it. It was clear and, and, Mm -hmm. and, uh, controlled the whole time. Right. And he still employs, uh, the other techniques we've talked about, like live footage, archival footage, stuff like that. But the rotoscoping is really what sticks out in this film. And it adds that a very naturalistic effect, um, which, as I said, I think works really well for this film. Um, and I think, you know, Bakshi, if you listen to him talk about this technique in interviews, I find it very interesting because he's had a, a sort of love-hate relationship with rotoscoping. Um, and I think that's for different reasons, I think. Well, that's kind of a whole other discussion. But, you know, he kind of sees it, maybe not cheating is not the right word, but he kind of sees it as maybe like a lesser... Um, form of animation or something that he experimented with because he was interested in it but in certain ways he regrets relying on it so much now but again for this movie um the story that he's telling with the different families and how ground level everything is and how humanistic everything is um the technique just makes so much sense here Mm -hmm. um and it's not the type of technique that i think is appropriate for every animated movie obviously like i don't think every animation should look like this but um here, here, I feel it's uh, very much in line with the story that the filmmakers are telling. Um, and also, he rotoscoped some actual footage, so uh, he's m- mixing even more there. So, like he did in Wizards, where he would uh, draw over wartime footage and things like that. Uh, in this film, he, uh, he would use old movies, um, some of the gangland scenes, or rotoscope footage from uh, the movie The Public Enemy from 1931, mm-hmm. uh, which is a gangster movie there. So... Um, and the stock footage also makes a lot of sense here, I think, right? Um, the way he uses it, because he's also kind of touching on a lot of moments in history. So the way he weaves that together, um, yeah, it's just, it's really overall, it just creates this really nice effect. And it's like, there's something very, um, which is obviously, I think, what he was going for, but something very nostalgic about this film. Yeah, absolutely. You know? And I think, I think that that technique um, of weaving in the stock footage and that kind of thing, what it called to mind for me um, is uh, have you seen Adam McKay's movies like his more re- like Vice and The Big Short? Got, no, no, I haven't seen those. Yeah, so, so they're definitely worth checking out. Um, he, and Adam McKay is a director who kind of at the beginning he was known. He directed Anchorman. He directed Step Brothers. Mm-hmm. He was kind of known for doing those comedies. But in the past few years, he's had this kind of career renaissance where he's done a couple more political. Uh, films, Vice being about Dick Cheney and The Big Short being about the economic crash in the mid to late 2000s. But he he incorporates a lot of stock footage. He has a very maximalist style. Um, and I can't help it. There's just a very similar feel to the way that Bakshi does it. Um, so so it, it's interesting to me. It's just that these techniques that Bakshi is using and the way he chooses to tell his story um, still are really relevant today and, and being used in yeah. popular film 
all the time. Mm-hmm. And also the um, to go back to rotoscoping for a moment, I just you know something else I thought of when I was watching the movie. It's the the fluidity of the movement. It just makes yeah. a lot of sense with this movie, like with all the dancing that he shows. Like I mentioned, the swing dancing scene. Mm-hmm. Um, just seeing that, and that's a technique. You know, when rotoscoping was first used. It was very early on. I'm probably going to get the dates wrong, but, you know, I, I remember seeing it in cartoons, black and white cartoons from like the 20s and 30s. You know what I mean? Like yeah. they would use it and they probably even used it before that um, as a way of kind of drawing over uh, footage to make it look real or realistic. I mean, um, early, even the films with Millier and all that, they were they yeah, were coloring they were the films kind of, by hand. So, right. And not exactly rotoscoping, but same idea. Same idea. Yeah. yeah. And um, and a lot of those early cartoons, um, you know, they would utilize actors dancing. Uh, like there's a very famous example of Cab Calloway uh, in I believe it's a Betty Boop cartoon. Might be getting that wrong as well, but I'm pretty sure. Um, and so he's dancing and doing his thing. You know, he had very uh, noticeable, like very signature moves and they were able to capture that um, through a character that they were animating um, by tracing over his movements. So that tradition goes way back. And I think, Ralph Bakshi was using it here to uh, a really good effect because so much of this film is focused on the music. And so to get that really fluid movement of the dancing, um, it just really helped tell his tale, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Mm -hmm. And the other thing you mentioned, um, moving from the rotoscoping, was the music. And Yes, the music. I think the music in this movie is, it's kind of wild. Um, From what I understand, he called in a lot of favors and got a lot of discounts mm-hmm. on this because the soundtrack to this movie I know. is unbelievable. <laughs> like yeah. it is like like on its own, just this collection of music, you could fill yeah. an hour and a half and mm-hmm. it would be a great hour and a half. Like Which just shows you the cred that Rip actually had at this time. I mean, he was he was essentially a legend, like a cult a cult legend, but a legend. And a yeah. lot of people really respected him. Um the fact that he was able to get these songs, yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, and what's interesting is it it was kind of also like like even like like Jimi Hendrix songs and all that like that I mean this came out in 1981 so you know Hendrix had passed away at this point so that means some a lot of these songs are coming from people's estates so yeah. it's not even just like an artist to artist connection it's like people even surrounding these artists felt passionately about having this music be in this film um Mm-hmm. And it's just it's it's so interesting because like as we mentioned before, the style of the film kind of matched the era, uh, but the music of the film really kind of defines the era. Of course, it's a movie about music, um, but I, I think that it's it's really kind of a special thing because you see that in a lot of films where you know oh it's the nineteen fifties so let's play a Bobby Vinton song or something like that in like a logical way. But I think in this particular film, the music really details change. The, the, mm-hmm. the music is is its own character. It's not something that's in the background just to give yeah. the era a certain feel. It, it is it is it's right at the forefront of how these characters' lives are changing and how the times are changing. Definitely, definitely. I mean, for example, like when you hear Jefferson Airplane or you hear The Doors, I mean, you think of a certain time period. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the time that these artists were active, but you just, it just brings you right back to a, a certain time. And he uses that to a really great effect in this movie. Um, so he uses actual songs but fictional characters, which I found interesting as well, mm-hmm. uh, which really allowed him to tell his own story. So it wasn't like he was telling the story of Janis Joplin or Bob Dylan or any of these people. He was just telling his own story with his own characters, um, but they were obviously very heavily influenced by these real-life people. 
Yeah, totally. And I, and I think that, that that influence and the fact that the these characters um, were playing songs that we're familiar with helps make them more relatable. Um, I was, this is kind of a weirdly unrelated thing, but the other day I had a free night and, uh, you know, I grew up in the 90s, so I'm a big Pokemon fan. And I went and saw uh, Detective Pikachu, which recently came out as we sit here on May 21st, 2019. And um, I think that, like, one thing that I realized was that going into it, um, I already felt connected to the characters, you know, because it was something familiar, it was something warm that I had grown up with. And I think that by making the fictional characters in this story be responsible for writing and playing songs that we already know and love, it personally helped me relate to them. Yeah. You know, it, it's like, 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 like a sense of familiarity that, oh, even mm -hmm. though, you know, this is a Jefferson Airplane song that because this character is now writing it because Jefferson Airplane is expressing certain things that I'm already mm -hmm. familiar with that it, I really it really helped me dig into that character and their story because the, it gave that sense of commonality yeah. it wasn't it wasn't a character that I had to totally learn and discover it was a character that already had something in common with me because yeah. of that and it also makes you look at the lyrics and the, the music itself in a different way, I think, because we've heard yeah. these songs, you know, a lot of these songs, we've heard them so many times, like, you know, mm -hmm. it's uh, like um, somebody to love or something like that. You know, you've just heard in so many different uh, ways and on the radio and movies. But in this movie, it's just you're relating it to the story that he's telling. And mm -hmm. you you can tell that so much of the focus is really on the music. So it kind of makes you take a step back and, and really look at it and really listen, uh, which is kind of cool. Um, did you have a favorite musical moment, Jeremy, in the movie, or like the way a song was used? Um, I mean, it's not it's not a particularly special, um, wild like story moment. I just I love the Jimi Hendrix scene. I mean, I'm a huge Hendrix fan. That was cool. And yeah, I was just really cool. I just I just love that he they just let the music go and just had that like like it, it really to me that was mm -hmm. a testament to Hendrix as a guitar player. But it also I I think kind of communicated mm -hmm. this feeling you know a shot from that low angle and basically the moment that's happening in the film is that the band that our character i believe that's tony right is i believe so. yeah the other uh, this character tony is a songwriter for is getting ready to go on after Jimi hendrix and when i when i was in high school i was in a band and there was that moment sometimes where you would see a band play before you and they just totally kill it and do this amazing job and then you're getting yeah. ready to go on it's horrifying and i think imagine Imagine going on after Jimmy Hendrix. Yeah, I can't even. But yeah. it applies for anything, you know. If you're at a film right. festival and your film is showing mm -hmm. and you're on next, or literally anything, and and I love that the way that Hendrix was portrayed in that moment as yeah. literally he like you couldn't make a cartoon character look more godlike yeah. than Jimmy He's Hendrix like from another that world, moment. really. I mean, yeah, yeah. And so to me, it just really stood out because yeah. that that was that was every to me that that kind of encapsulated how, how brilliant back she is and how just mm -hmm. by using color line shape yeah and and sound he can just totally immerse you in a moment it's, it was really a powerful thing to me mm -hmm. what about you mark any specific yeah there is a specific moment but just going off what you were talking about i just wanted to want to add add one little thing there um it's also really cool like what you mentioned that they go on after Hendrix um just thinking about that like he really it's cool how this movie portrays the little guy you know yeah and, like how you know because a lot of these movies would be focused on Hendrix you know mm -hmm. but they're focused on the band that goes after Hendrix and in real life someone had to go on after Hendrix yeah you know? we don't know anything about those people right mm -hmm. so this movie kind of um again it just it brings you 
a different perspective than you would normally see, which Bakshi is great at. Um, and to answer your question, uh, a music moment for me, actually my favorite music moment, um, I'm actually not sure if he's even playing a real song. I would have to look that up. Um, but the scene where he's playing the piano, one of the characters, the character that's in World War II, is that Tony uh, actually? No, that's um, not Tony. That is Tony's father. That was the one before him, yeah. Tony's father. When he's playing the piano, uh, it's actually right in the middle of the war. He just finds his piano and like a, bombed out uh house i guess and he just sits down and after or during the battle i guess and he starts playing and a nazi soldier is sneaking up behind him and the music is just so beautiful that it momentarily stops the nazi in his tracks and he just kind of stands there and just stares and listens to the music and once the song's over he just he says thank you or danke and then shoots him and that's and then it, i don't know i just thought that scene was really powerful and it really shows the power of music as well, um, which is something that I think he was trying to get across. Yeah, that is a strikingly beautiful scene and moment. Um, mm-hmm. And and I think, yeah. once again, very Bakshi, this idea of the little bit of beauty in the midst of mm-hmm. a, a pretty... Mixed with the realism. ...harsh, yeah. terrifying world. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. No, yeah, it just is... That little moment was pretty... It is interesting because this definitely isn't Bakshi's most famous film. This is this is one of the films that was critically really well received for him. Um, maybe even the best reception. Uh, Although this across this, the board, this movie is um, it is Kanye West's favorite musical apparently. Yes, yeah. So, so <laughs> that was one of the trivia things I saw about it. Well, so the the video, the music video for yeah. what's the song? Uh, um, Heartless, that? Heartless. I want to say lo- <coughs> Love Lockdown. Yeah. The the music video for Heartless uses the rotoscoping and animation techniques in a, mm. almost exactly the same way. It's like a very obvious homage, yeah, to this the movie. And I could see, you know, I mean, you, you could mm. see how someone like, because Kanye West, before he was famous, was kind of an, you know, an underdog kind of character. And you could see how mm-hmm. someone who yeah. like, like Kanye West, who has a deep connection to family and these big musical mm-hmm. dreams that he feels he probably won't get to live out unless he is his absolute best and is perfect with it. You know, you could see how as someone like that and you could see how anyone with a dream could connect to this movie. And that, and that is what I think is so American about it. Um, you know, I, I personally have a, a soft spot in my heart for Americana imagery and mm-hmm. American stories. And I think that, you know, this, this story is kind of the essence of what it means to be, American, you know, always kind of chasing the, this, this, I don't know, I don't want to use the word dream even, but just this, this idea, this idea that if, if you work hard and you play your cards right, that things could work out in your favor. Um, but Mm -hmm. really not knowing, you know, not knowing exactly what playing your cards right means. And sometimes you, you do what you think is right and everything goes horribly wrong. And sometimes you do what you, you know, things that you don't think are going to work out, but they play out perfectly. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I really, I really think Bakshi or, and the writer of this film, who we would be remiss if we don't mention, Ronnie Kern is the writer of this film. Um, They, they really tapped into that. I think they, they tapped into that idea of uh, the American story. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, other than, uh, you know, the Jimi Hendrix moment, was there anything else that really stood out to you or you, you know, that you wanted to talk about from this film? Um, yeah, I, well, I think just the, this is a weird kind of side note and parallel. Um, but the, I, for some reason I kept thinking of Forrest Gump during this movie. Oh yeah, totally. While I was watching <laughs> I it. Yeah, um, I'm sure. not sure if this had any influence, yeah. 
Um, but to my knowledge, I can't really, I guess maybe like it's a wonderful life kind of had a similar thing where it's this character Mm -hmm. over a long period of time and every major world event seems to influence them. But to me, the difference between this and a Forrest Gump is that I kind of really believe this, you know, because it was multi-generational. Um, yeah, this felt like it, it could like it, like obviously they are affected by a lot of major events, but that you know it didn't it didn't feel like an unrealistic series of events to me yeah the way this went yeah i feel like a lot of forrest gump is played more for laughs i guess or you know a little bit more exaggerated but this is yeah. very very ground level very street level um yeah so just like a different take on that kind of idea um <clears throat> which is interesting because you know forrest gump has him meeting different famous people like john lennon and uh richard nixon and stuff like that so you get some of that here, um, although it's more like those people are in the periphery. They don't really ever get to meet. You know, it's like they're almost crossing paths, but not really. So it's kind of cool in that way. A little more subtle uh, version of that story, I would say. Um, and there was one other scene I wanted to talk about because um, we talk about the power of music and how he portrays that. There's one other scene that kind of uh, I thought was very powerful and maybe kind of take notice was when... Um, uh, Zalmi, I don't know if I'm saying that right, but mm-hmm. he, uh, when he is, uh, he gets, so he gets married to this woman, Bella, um, who he's trying to help become a, a famous singer and he's, uh, getting involved with all kinds of shady characters and mobsters and whatnot. Um, uh, and there's a scene where, uh, she receives a, a package, uh, so it's a delivery and she goes into the other room and Zalmi's sitting at the piano, um, and, uh, we just hear, the explosion go off because it was a mail bomb sent by we don't know exactly who but somebody in the you know some mobster or someone who wanted to uh it was probably meant for salmi the zombie the uh the explosion but Mm -hmm. it ends up killing his wife uh and so it's a very traumatic moment but the way that it's treated is so interesting he just keeps sitting at the piano doesn't even look behind him i don't think he just starts banging the piano Mm -hmm. and then there's like this scene transition like along with a time jump, it just like jumps ahead in time. Yeah. It's just like really, really cool the way that he presented that scene. I thought, yeah, and how the yeah. trauma keeps going back into the music. You know, the the, the pain and the struggle. It, it all comes down to yeah. It's how like it he interweaves. Yeah, he interweaves like the music with these moments and with mm-hmm. these stories and yeah. these families. And um, yeah, it's uh, what do you think about the way it ended? That's the last thing I want to ask you about. Is that that kind of ending montage they have there. Uh, what do you think about that with our last character that we focus on? Uh, I, I enjoyed the ending personally. I thought it was cool. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that, you know, after all of that, you know, you could have it not pay off, you know, it could yeah. have just been another kind of lost cause. But I think that the, the final character that we saw, um, he, he, he was a little bit more hardened than all the other had, all the others had mm-hmm. been. Um, because, and, and it is, it's a generational trauma kind of thing, but it seems like he was the first one who really channeled the trauma into the music. It seemed like the other ones, like the the music was always there and it Mm -hmm. it was almost like you wanted to just grab them and say, no, just go play your music. Um, and like, like it got like a little bit closer through each generation. Mm -hmm. Um, and finally it's like, oh, you know, this guy has taken all of these experiences and is now finally like using the art. He's using he's using the passion and putting it into something productive that's good that he can share mm-hmm. and with the world and tell his story. Yeah. 
it's almost like a release for him. That's how I saw yeah. it. You know, it's it's like through all these generations, it's like, mm-hmm. you know, they keep falling on hard times as family. And, you know, this main character that we end with, uh, whose name is Pete, uh, he, you know, so he's Tony's son and Tony mm-hmm. ends up just leaving him and walking out on him um, pretty much soon after uh, Pete learns that he's, or Pete reveals to him that he knows that he's his father because yeah. Tony's just been essentially taking care of this of this kid and not really saying anything, letting him know that he's his father. Um, and then, so he, he eventually, you know, he pawns Pete's guitar and just leaves and never comes back. So it could have ended on a really down note, but I think the fact that they end with that last little montage and him performing the, the, the song. Um, yeah, it's a great release and it's a great, like, I think just closing segment for the film, uh, it really ends on a, a really cool note there. Yep. Um, and they have some images of his ancestors, I think, like flash on the screen and stuff like that, or appear mm-hmm. like as he's performing, which is kind of cool, like a way yeah. to tie everything together. So, yeah, really cool movie. Um, I really liked revisiting it um, even more than I think the first time I saw it. I think I just appreciated it a lot more, mm-hmm. um, especially at look, you know, looking at all his films uh, together in this in the series that we're doing, I think seeing this movie again made me realize just how different it is from everything else that he did and how sort of genuine and earnest, like you said, I think that's a good way to, to describe how this film uh, comes across. Yeah. Um, I think this is a good film. I mean, it's a good film for anyone to see. I think this is a good film for adult. If you haven't seen it, um, I think it's a good film, at least personally, I'm glad I saw this for the first time as an adult um, because I think that there is a certain perspective that you have once you get through your younger years and for me at least personally watching this also it's a little near and dear to my heart because my lineage you know goes back to jews in russia so like literally like um, not that my life parallels this but that you know my uh ancestry for i guess kind of parallels it Mm -hmm. but but it kind of gave me an appreciation um for my own family and Mm -hmm. what they must have had to go through to just get by and the things that you, the stories that you never hear because there wasn't the same kind of record keeping, but knowing that at some point, you know, people in your own family way back when were making sacrifices and going through difficult things, um, Mm -hmm. to get you to where you are right now. And to me, that's a really special thing. Yeah. In a way, this is his most adult, adult film, I think. Uh, Adult, adult animated film. Uh, you know, they always, they always talk about how Bakshi made, adult animated uh you know adult cartoons or whatever you want to call them like when fritz the cat first came out that was a big promotional thing it's like x-rated cartoon you know but this is yeah i mean it just like you said watching it when you're older um i think you just kind of connect with it in a different way uh with the all the nostalgia and the music and the family and all that you know just there's something about it just very very grown up um his most grown up film i would say um so very cool movie to check out and next time we will be closing out our series by talking about uh, the last big movie, even though it was a failure. But we would be remiss not to talk about it because it's a, it was, it was a big one for him in a lot of ways. Uh, his most mainstream in almost all, all the ways besides Lord of the Rings. Um, so we're going to focus on that next time, and that is Cool World. So for now, I just want to say thanks for listening to Cult Movie Cult. And you can find us on iTunes, Podbean, and Spotify, as well as on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you have any cult films you'd like to hear us discuss on the show, or if you'd like to officially join the cult and be a guest on the show, please feel free to reach out to us at cultmoviecult at gmail.com. This has been Cult Movie Cult, and until next time, so long from the other side.